don't know if you guys have noticed this, but Americans right now are really into restoring things. Uh, to, so let's talk about what that means. To restore something basically means to, uh, to bring something back to its original state, right? To make it like it was created to be. And I don't know if we've always loved restoring things or if it's just a fad right now, but if you, if you turn on your TV, if you watch YouTube at all, you'll, you'll notice there are an incredible amount of TV shows dedicated to restoring things. Uh, if you want to learn about restoring old houses, you can watch all sorts of restoration shows like Flip or Flop or Fixer Upper or Property Brothers. Uh, there are shows like American Restoration, uh, focus on restoring really cool old vintage machines and collectibles. Uh, there are a ton of shows about restoring old cars, like uh, there's a show called Fast and Loud, and there's a show called Graveyard Cars, and there's other shows just like that. There are TV shows about restoring down broken restaurants, like Restaurant Impossible and Bar Rescue. Uh, there are even reality shows about restoring boats, uh, which have really clever names I found, like The Whole Truth and Flipping Ships. Uh, there are shows about restoring old airplanes, like Plane Resurrection is the name of the show. And uh, there's a show about restoring old motorcycles, like American Motocross Restoration. So something they're tapping into, this makes money. People watch this. People are watching these shows. So why are people so fascinated with restoring old things? Why does it give us so much happiness as people to take broken and ugly things and then restore them into the beautiful things that they originally were? Well, I think uh, the answer is because God loves to restore things. In the book of Genesis in the Bible, uh, it says that God created human beings in his own image, which means that human beings are similar to God in really profound ways. And just like many of us like to take old broken things and clean them up so that they can be enjoyed and so that they can be used again to do what they were created to do, so also God enjoys the same thing. He likes taking people, broken people, and restoring them so that they can live for the reason God created them to live. And the Bible passage we're going to look at today is a prime example of the joy that God takes in restoring broken people, even when restoring them costs him a lot. Okay? Uh, remember that during Jesus' public ministry, he had thousands of people who followed him, and within those masses, he had 12 disciples who he actually called to follow him. And within those disciples, there were three disciples who were closest to Jesus. And one of those inner three disciples was named Simon. And Simon was a commercial fisherman when Jesus called him. And he, he was known kind of for having this bold, assertive, uh, confident, very confident, overconfident personality. And he was, uh, Simon was one of the first people to publicly declare that he believed that Jesus was who he said he was, that he is the Messiah that the Old Testament prof, uh, prophets prophesied about, that he is the Savior who's coming to the world uh, to save us. And, and right after Simon made that declaration, Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, which means rock. And he told Peter that he was going to use him to build his church. And so Peter had a lot going for him. He was following Jesus. He was used by Jesus to do a lot of miracles and amazing things we read about 
in the Bible, uh, and he was a key leader among the disciples. And, and as we mentioned last week, though, the night before Jesus uh, was crucified, when Jesus told the disciples that one of them would betray Jesus, Simon Peter was the one to pipe up and say, no, you're wrong, Jesus. I will never be that one. I will never betray you. I will go to prison for you. I will die with you. I'll die for you. And Jesus responded to Peter by telling him that, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny that you even know me. And that's exactly what happened. Simon Peter, uh, he'd been known for being bold and confident, but suddenly he quickly crumbled under the pressure when some strangers asked him if he was one of Jesus' disciples. And we think that at least one or two of those strangers was a little girl. And he couldn't tell the girl that he was a, a follower of Jesus. And uh, in fact, he said he didn't even know the guy. He said, I don't even know Jesus. And then the rooster crowed. And Peter realized that Jesus' words had come true and that he had denied his Lord three times. And Peter, it says, ran away from them where they were at. He ran away and wept bitterly. And he basically left Jesus to suffer and die on his own. Now, the amazing thing about this, as we keep reading the Bible, is that Jesus didn't stay dead, but that he rose from the dead three days later, just like he said he would. And then he appeared to Peter. And he offered Peter and all the disciples in that room where he appeared to them forgiveness uh, because he, could, he, he, he said, I, I've just suffered and died to forgive the sins that you've committed against me. And so Jesus offered them forgiveness and friendship again. He, he became reconciled to them again, and he told them twice, peace be with you. And so Jesus forgave Peter specifically for denying him and for abandoning him, but Peter really had not been fully restored yet. Peter uh, had not only denied knowing Jesus, but think about this. What had Peter done as a leader of the early church? Peter had disqualified himself from leadership in the church. How could Peter lead Jesus' followers going forward since he so quickly denied even knowing Jesus just recently? Well, this is where we see the unmerited, restorative grace of God come into play. And we're going to see in this passage today how Jesus restores Simon Peter back into the man and back into the leader that God created him to be. And we're going to see why that matters for us in here. So if you've got your Bible with you, you can open up to John 21, uh, verses 15 to 17 we'll be in. And... If you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love to, you can drop by the information table after the service or come talk to me or another leader. We'd love to tell you where you can get a good one. Before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord to help us. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, this undeserving, uh, unmerited, restorative grace that you show us through Jesus. And uh, may we be quick to admit that we don't deserve to be here today, uh, to, to experience the blessing of fellowship with one another and life and worship, but, but by your grace, you, you woke us up today, you put air in our lungs, you allowed us to get here, and, and you've blessed us with this time now. And so we ask that you would speak to us now through your word and uh, use it to remind us of the grace that we have in you, uh, through faith, 
through faith in Jesus and in the gospel. And help us, uh, God, to, I pray that your spirit would use this word to make us into disciples who follow you, who treasure you and follow you. We ask that you would keep Satan and his demons away from us and that you would protect our minds and our hearts so that we can concentrate and give you our focus. And Please bless the children and the workers in the nursery and next door. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so Jesus has just appeared to the disciples in his resurrection body on the beach, the Sea of Galilee, and he gave them this mirac- miraculous catch of 153 fish, and then he served them breakfast over a charcoal fire, it says, on the beach. And in John 21, 15 to 17, we read, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So this passage is our guide. I want us to try to kind of imagine for a second what this scene was like. Jesus and the seven disciples here were were probably sitting on the beach in a circle around a fire. Have you ever done that? Ever sat on the beach around a fire with friends? Some people might have been sitting on the ground. Some of them might have been sitting on some wood or some rocks. And you, what does it sound like when you're sitting on the beach? You can hear the waves of the Sea of Galilee, right, slapping on the shore behind them. The campfire might have been crackling in front of them. And what does it smell like? Probably smelled like campfire smoke, right? And by God's grace, it also smelled like freshly caught fish, right? You ever smelled your hands after you caught a fish? You know that smell? It's a good smell, especially when you need it. And it also smelled like freshly grilled fish, because Jesus had grilled fish for them. And the disciples, it says they just finished stuffing their mouths with the, the taste of grilled fish and fresh bread. And Simon Peter's clothes, they probably would have still been soppy and wet since he jumped out into the sea and swam to Jesus, but he's probably standing or sitting next to the fire, warming up and gradually drying out. And as they sat there, Peter and Jesus had some unfinished business. Peter, remember, had already been reconciled to Jesus. They'd already, Jesus had forgiven him and they were friends again, but it was unclear where Peter stood among the disciples. Was he still considered one of their leaders? Did Jesus still intend to use Simon Peter in ministry? Or, or was Jesus now going to appoint somebody else and, and use somebody else to lead the disciples since Simon Peter, uh, Peter had proved to be un, unfaithful? Well, before Jesus restores Peter to any sort of leadership position among the disciples, and before he gives Peter any marching orders... Peter must first be restored as a follower of Jesus, okay? 
Peter, we don't have any indication here that Peter had actually lost his faith in Jesus. He just was a coward. He cowardly denied knowing Jesus. But that is a very serious offense in the eyes of God for Peter and for you and for me. Remember this, that Jesus had said in Luke 12, 8 to 9, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man, he's talking about himself, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So during your life on earth, if, it's, this is what it's saying. If you deny that Jesus is God, or if you continually deny being his follower on earth, then he will deny you when you meet him face to face after this life in the company of all the angels of heaven. That's a scary thought. That should freak us out. <laughs> Denying God before people with our words and or with our actions is an extremely serious sin. And in order for Peter to move forward as a follower of Jesus, this sin must be dealt with. Okay? Peter must, he's been forgiven. But he must repent from the sin and acknowledge publicly that he is a follower of Jesus and that he does love Jesus. Because this was a public sin he had committed. And so after they finish eating breakfast, Jesus does something really interesting here. Verse 15 says that he addresses Simon Peter in front of the other disciples. And he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And then Jesus asks him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than, or do you love me? He doesn't say more than these the second time. But the third time he asks him again, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, just um, as a side point, it is true that in the Greek, the word love, he uses two different words for love. And some pastors will point that out. However, I'm not going to camp out on that one today because in the Gospel of John, John uses those two words for love interchangeably. And so I don't think the evidence is conclusive enough here that Jesus is challenging him to do, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you? And so anyways, I think the point is he's saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Now, it's interesting that uh, what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't call him by the name that he gave to him. He doesn't call him Peter. Jesus has previously changed Simon's name to Peter, remember, to designate Peter's leadership role among the first Christians. But he doesn't call him Peter right now. He calls him Simon. And more than that, three times in a row, he calls him Simon, son of John. That's his family name. That's his, that's his birth name, right? Simon, son of John. Because before Peter was ever a leader of the disciples, before he was ever a follower of Jesus, he was Simon, son of John. Remember, at the, at the start of Jesus' public ministry, he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was, and, and he saw Simon, son of John, casting his fishing net into the water. And Jesus called out to him, and he said, follow me. And at that moment, Simon, son of John, heard Jesus' call, and he responded to him by dropping his nets, his livelihood, his work, and he followed Jesus right then because he wanted to follow this Jesus. He wanted to be with this Jesus. And and so here we are now around this campfire, and Jesus is kind of resetting things for John, or for Simon Peter. You might think of, of Peter, the name Peter, as, as Simon Peter's ministry name that Jesus gave to him. But Simon was Simon Peter's birth name. 
And so before Jesus restores Peter, the leader of the disciples, Jesus must restore Simon, the man, the follower of Jesus. And by calling him Simon, son of John, Jesus reminds Simon that more important than Simon's love for ministry, more important than Simon's desire to be accepted by people which caused him to fall into sin, more important than preserving his life on earth, more important than all those things is his love for Jesus. And so just as Peter had denied knowing Jesus uh, three times in, in front of these people, in front of those people around that fire, Peter must now declare, he's not funny, it just hit me, two different fires. He denied him in front of a fire, and now he declares that he trusts him in front of a fire. Um, Peter must now declare his love for Jesus three times in front of people again. This isn't a magic formula that, by which Jesus forgives Peter, so let's not take it as that, okay? Just like you and me, the only way that Peter could be forgiven for his sins was by trusting in Jesus through faith in his death and resurrection. But for the sake of restoring Peter, Jesus addresses the wickedness of Simon's sin in a way that is both painful and humbling and restorative for him. Verse 17 says that when Jesus asked Simon a third time whether he loved him, it grieved him. It grieved Simon Peter. It grieved him that Jesus had to ask him in public whether he truly loved him or not. But it was necessary because Peter had said three other times that he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Jesus is not into giving us guilt trips, okay? But Jesus is into helping us see the reality that our sin makes us guilty and breaks our fellowship with a holy God. And we can either deal with that reality and deal with that sin and guilt and receive forgiveness and restoration through faith in Jesus, or we can remain in our guilt, pretend it doesn't exist, and stay separated from God. But Jesus, he doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want that for you. He died on the cross to rescue you from the eternal punishment of God's wrath that your guilt has earned. And then Jesus fills his followers with his Holy Spirit in order to restore us so that we can turn away from the very thoughts and behaviors that make people guilty before God. You see that? The Holy Spirit enters us so that we can not do those thoughts and behaviors that make made us guilty before God. And by his Holy Spirit and with his word, Jesus confronts these sins in our lives that make us guilty before God, and he helps us uproot those from our hearts and from our lives so that we can follow him unhindered. And Jesus helps us do this because he loves us. Not because he's out to get us. It's because he loves us and he knows that the path of trusting God, the path of uprooting brokenness and sin in our lives is the path of blessing for us. It's the path of restoration for us. And so while Jesus addresses Simon Peter's sin here in front of the other disciples, he gets to the heart of the matter and he, he says this, do you love me, Simon, son of Jonah? And the reason that's such an important question for him to answer, for all of us to answer, really, is because the sinful desires that got Peter into this mess, the desire to not be hated, 
by non-Christians and the desire to not be persecuted for following Jesus, those desires can't be killed easily just by the power of Peter's flesh and his hard work. If Peter's truly going to follow Jesus and uproot sinful habits in his life, then those sinful habits must be replaced by a greater desire. And that desire must be love for Jesus. That's how you stop sinning in your life. Not because it's easy to do. Not because it makes your body feel good. Not because it means people are going to be nice to you. You stop sinning in your life when your desire for Jesus becomes greater than your desire to sin against him. Your desire to follow Jesus becomes greater than your desire to, to, not, to deny Jesus. It does not mean you're not fighting against your body. It doesn't mean you're not tempted. It means I want Jesus more than I want my sin now by God's grace. And I don't always pick Jesus over my sin, but I want to pick Jesus more and more, and he offers me this path of forgiveness and restoration through faith. Um, that's exactly what Jesus is asking Simon at this campfire. Simon, do you love me more than anything else? That's the same question Jesus asks you today. Do you love me more than anything else? It doesn't mean if you have a mantle above your fireplace where you put your gods, it doesn't mean is Jesus one of the statues on the fireplace fireplace mantle next to your other gods. It means is Jesus the statue? And there's nothing else. Do you love me more than anything else where you'll clear everything else off and I'm it? Do you love me for, for what I did for you by dying for your sins and by giving you my righteousness and by adopting you into God's family? Do you love me because of what I'm doing right now for you? I'm always with you. I'm helping you. I'm interceding for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you love me for what I'm going to do for you, which I promise I'm going to do? I'm going to bring you and everyone who trusts me to be with me in heaven for eternity. Do you love me for that? Do you love me because I am God? I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm holy and good, and I deserve your love and fear and devotion and worship. Do you love me for that? I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke right now in my own quiet times, and, uh, <clears throat> and this week I came to Luke 11:42, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, saying, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the Pharisees were really good at being religious. They were faithful church attenders. They regularly tithed their money. They regularly uh, worked hard to not sin against God. And they prayed a lot. So what does Jesus have to tell them? Woe to you, Pharisees. This is serious. This is God saying woe to you. And woe to you, Pharisaical Christians. Because you do all this religious stuff, but you don't love me. You don't love Jesus with all your heart. You don't serve your neighbor with the love of Jesus. You just tell everybody else how they're not following God correctly, and you think that's loving them. You say that you love the Lord, but you bite and devour your fellow Christians and your Christian leaders. Woe to Pharisees. That's what Jesus says. So we got to ask ourselves, man, am I a Pharisee? I don't want to be in that camp. Maybe you jump through all the right religious hoops. You're a really moral person. You even help the poor. 
Paul says all that's useless if you don't love Jesus. You don't have to be a Christian to do any of that. Jesus isn't impressed. I mean, this is what we see in the New Testament, that he's not impressed, and in the Old Testament. He's not impressed by someone who has a perfect attendance record at church or by someone who claims to have all their theology perfectly figured out even. Jesus is impressed, what you see is he's impressed by great faith in God that works itself out through love for God and through a self-sacrificing love for sinful people. Not for people who are just like us or who meet our standards. That's what impresses God. And just as bad as it is to be a religious person who doesn't love God, it's just as bad to be a person who claims to love God but who doesn't follow him. Remember Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How can you claim to love God if you're disobeying his commandments, right? Habitually, it, you, you, you can claim it all day. You can put it, mark it wherever you want that you're a follower. You can try to convince other people and even yourself that you're a follower, but you can't fool God. Jesus loves you and he knows that you sin and that's why you need him to save you from your sin and from the guilt of your sin and he knows that all of us sin every day. We, we don't do what he tells us to do and we do what he tells us not to do. But the question is, are you making a habit of it? Are you making a habit of sinning? Is there a sin that you do in offense against God? And remember this, all offenses against other people are offenses against God. Okay. Is there a sin that you do, maybe, maybe one you, that, that, that is wrong according to the Bible, Maybe you've even felt convicted by the Holy Spirit about it, yet you keep doing it. You're not repenting from it. That's where you're walking on thin ice. And me too. For, I'm, I'm not just, I'm, I, I have done that in the past. And it's terrible, and I thank God that, well, I'm not gonna go there, this isn't about me. But that's where we walk on thin ice if we haven't already fallen through. See, 1 John 3, 8 to 10, same John who wrote this gospel says whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you're a Christian, and the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, if you're reading the Bible, then you are not going to make a practice of sin and feel good about it. Okay? Because the Holy Spirit, it says he's, he abides in you. He's going to convict you of your sin if he's in you. That's why it's convenient for many people not to read the Bible. I can just stay ignorant. I won't know what God thinks. I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think the Holy Spirit's gonna let you off on that one if you've got access to the Bible. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you fill your mind with the truth of God's commands, as you make yourself accountable to God and to other Christians, that you actually can stop patterns of sin in your life by God's grace and by his power. So that means we, we read God's word to find out what pleases God, what pleases Jesus, this awesome Jesus, what displeases him, 
God, help me to examine my life. Ask, ask yourself, am I living a lifestyle that displeases Jesus? And if I, if I publicly claim to be a Christian, am I living in a way that brings dishonor to the name of Jesus who I claim to follow? That's a responsibility of all of us because ultimately we are therefore Christ's ambassadors to the world. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5. We are Christ's ambassadors. We're his representatives. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, so if whether you're a very religious person overall or whether you're really irreligious um, or whether you're a combination of both, which I think probably we all are, the question that Jesus asks all of us today is, do you love me more than anything else? He's not asking you again, do you, do you love me in addition to all the other people and activities in, in your life? Do you love me the most? That is the most important question for all of us. And before you seek to serve the church or the community, you have to ask yourself, do I love Jesus? And is my love for Jesus becoming increasingly evident to the people around me by the way that I live and by what I value and by how I treat other people? Three times Jesus asked, asked Simon Peter here if he loved him. Simon responded to Jesus by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Second time he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Third time Simon answered, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So it's interesting that despite the fact that Simon had denied Jesus three times, Simon pled with the Lord to look at Simon's heart since the Lord knows everything. Simon knew that he truly loved the Lord even though he'd messed up badly. And Jesus already knew that Simon loved him. The reason Jesus asked him if he loved him was to root this sin out that Peter was prone to and to humble Peter and to <clears throat> keep him from pride, which all of us are prone to. And, and just as Simon Peter had denied knowing Jesus these three times, he repented from that sin now and has genuinely publicly declared his love for Jesus three times and his desire to follow Jesus. And, and by doing all of this, Jesus is restoring Simon first as his follower, as a man, and then secondly, as a leader. And we're gonna camp out on that more next week on the leader part. But... Uh, it's, it's noteworthy that Jesus probably did this in the presence of the disciples so that they could see that Jesus' plan is to use Peter going forward to build the people, the church, just like he said he was going to do. And we know that Jesus does believe Peter's confession of faith because look at how Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus responds to Peter by giving him authority. He gives him authority over the thing that he loves most in the whole world, which is his church. Jesus calls all of us, his followers, all of, all, all of his followers, his church, and he loves his people, his church, so much that sometimes in the Bible, he, the church is referred to as Jesus' bride. His bride, he loves his bride. Now, would Jesus give Peter authority to help care for and nurture his bride if he didn't think Peter loved God here? No, of course not. Jesus is restoring and reinstating Peter to a position of church leadership. And he does that by empowering Peter to care for his people who were so precious to him that he suffered and died to save them. 
What does that tell us about God? It says that God is a restorer of broken people. God is a restorer of broken Christians. Now, if you're here today and you don't consider yourself a, either a believer in God or a follower of Jesus, my guess is that you're a broken person still because we all have been broken by our own sins and by the sins of other people. And if you don't believe you're a broken person and that you uh, don't need God to save you or to restore you, then that's evidence that you're a broken person. Your delusional kind of self-assurance, which is not in alignment with reality, is evidence you are broken. So whether you acknowledge you're broken or you don't, you need to know this. This is the point. Jesus is a restoring God. He is your maker. He knows what you're supposed to look like as a holistic being. He knows how much you don't look like that right now. But for the glory of his name and for your eternal blessing, Jesus wants to enter your life and restore you. And you can start that journey today. You start that by praying to Jesus and telling him you believe that he's God, if you believe that he's God. And you tell him you've done wicked things. And that you need him to forgive you. And you need him to take away your guilt. And you need uh, him to, to do for you. Well, you need him to, to apply your sins to him on the cross. What he died on the cross. He, you, just as he died, you need your sins to die too. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, you need to be united to Christ through faith so that you can have new life. And if you ask him to save you and to give you eternal life, he will. This is what he says, Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Good news, huh? So if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And the first step you take of obedience after that is called baptism. And baptism is when you publicly confess that you believe that Jesus is, is Lord. And then we baptize you underwater as a visual picture of the death of your old life and the birth of your new life that you have in Jesus Christ. If you're a follower in Jesus, be baptized. It is command of Jesus. And if you have any questions or concerns about that, please talk to me or one of our other leaders about it. We'd be happy to talk with you. <coughs> God loves to take broken people, broken teenagers, broken kids, broken adults, and restore them into his own image. But you know what? Even after we belong to God through faith, even after we become Christians, we can really blow it, just like Peter did. And one of the lies that Satan wants Christians to believe is that God won't restore you or use you in ministry because of your past sins, either sins that you did before you were a Christian or sins that you did after you were a Christian. And you need to know that's not true. And Peter is evidence of that. Peter was a Christian before he denied knowing Jesus, I believe. Peter didn't lose his salvation when he denied knowing Jesus. Peter was just a Christian who made some really bad choices and really made a big mess out of his life, just like many of us in here have done. And, and Peter needed God's forgiveness and reconciliation, just like all of us need that. And Peter needed Jesus to help him see that, help him see his own sin clearly so that he could uproot it, repent from it, and move forward and be restored so that he could go on to serve the Lord.
So hear this. God totally forgives you of all your wickedness when you trust in Jesus Christ. Hear that. And God can definitely use you to minister to others no matter what you have done in your past, even if you were a Christian when that happened. That's true. Okay? In fact, God, this is what he does. He likes to turn the brokenness in our lives upside down. So he redeems our past brokenness and he uses it to shape us and to help us minister to other people better. Are you an alcoholic? That God can restore you and use you. Hear that? Are you rough around the edges with people or their upbringing? God can restore you and use you. We've seen that in our church. It's incredible. Are you fearful and scared and timid? God can restore you and use you. I'm telling you that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, it's not about me. I'm testifying to that to me, about me, though. Are you angry and bitter and unforgiving? God can restore you and use you. Have you denied Jesus as God in the past? Well, Jesus can restore you and use you, just like he did Peter. And if you have any doubt about that, then what you need to do, again, is open the Bible and get to know other people in this church and hear their stories. But open the Bible. You start reading all about the people that God used in amazing ways in Scripture, you'll discover most of them made a wreck out of their lives at one point or another. A lot of them did. But God loves to restore broken people and he loves to bless them with the joy of knowing him as he uses them for his glory on earth and in heaven. Now, when, when Jesus helps you turn from your sin <coughs> and when he restores you to serve his kingdom, if you're a Christian, it doesn't necessarily mean you get a free pass to serve him in all the ways you used to serve him. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But if we come to God humbly and offer him our hands and our feet and our hearts and our personalities and our unique skills, then we can be joyful serving the Lord however he wants us to serve him. So may God give us hearts that love Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. Do you love me? May God give us hearts that love Jesus with all that we are. And may this love for Jesus be evident in our lives and in our relationships with other people. And then out of the overflow of the love for Jesus in our hearts, may we seek to obey him and serve others and tell others about this amazing love. Next time, we're going we're gonna to look more closely at the task that, that Jesus gives Peter uh, to do now that he's been restored as Simon, the follower of Jesus, and as Peter, the servant leader. Okay? So I hope you come back for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives, God. Um, Thanks for running to us and putting your arms around us even when we were going the other way and embracing us and saving us, Jesus. You're so awesome. You're such a good God. And I thank you that you love to take broken people and forgive them and restore them and love them and keep them with you forever. I pray, God, for, for all of us here, God, whatever mistakes we've made in the past, that we would turn from our sin that you'd give us strength to turn from the sins in our life right now, that you'd give us eyes by the power of your spirit and maybe um, by the power of your word and accountability, whatever you need to use, God. But help us to see those sins that need to be uprooted in our own lives so that we can be freed in our lives from those sins and go on to experience forgiveness and restoration in you as we serve you. Um, we love you, Lord, and 
help us just to meditate on this passage and on your, your awesome restorative grace uh, this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.